I think empathy is rooted in understanding. I think you can't love me if you don't understand me. And so when we're trying to bridge divides of any kind, it is rooted in understanding, not just listening. Welcome back to an all new season of Off the Gram, the show where we bring you straight into the trenches with us to help you live your best life channel your inner girl boss, and navigate the ever-changing landscapes of wellness and social media. Hey, ladies. Hey, gang. Megan, I really think you nailed it. I mean, two years in, you'd think that we wouldn't have like, a tongue <laughs> twister time every time we try to do our own intro, but for whatever reason, I always I always cheer people on silently when it's not me reading it. I'm like, go, Megan! Go, go, go! And also, how come it's not memorized? Like, that's also scary. It's all uphill from here, guys. All right. Yes. So... This is Jamie. Our guest today believes deeply in the power of storytelling and using her platform and voice to lift up others. Chloe Dulce Luvoiso is a Congolese American writer, mother, and advocate for women whose work is driven by the notion that we're all qualified to tell our stories. But some of the most powerful stories are from those who have been the most stigmatized, overlooked, and underserved. Chloe's book, Life I Swear, Intimate Stories from Black Women on Identity, Healing, and Self-Trust, just released on November 2nd from HarperCollins, follows her successful podcast of the same name, Life I Swear, but her history in global citizenship began long before her days as an author and podcaster. Heidi here. Chloe's 15-year career in communications has forged her path and informed her desire to mend through inclusivity and narratives. She currently serves as Senior Communications Officer at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation on its Public Engagement and Insights team. Prior to joining the foundation, she served as Director of Communications for Services for the Underserved, one of the largest human services agencies in New York City and Akila Institute for Women, a women's college in Kigali, Rwanda, after working in public affairs at the start of her career. In her spare time, Chloe sits on Washington, D.C., Mayor Bowser's Commission for Women, through which she supports citywide initiatives championing health and human services and public policy safety for women. She's also a founding board member of Huru, which creates sacred spaces for rest experiences that foster emotional well-being and wholeness. And of course, one of her most important roles, she is a mother to her beautiful son, Mayel. Listen to today's episode if you want to hear beautiful life lessons told through powerful stories with universal appeal that transcend race and gender. You want to deepen your universal love and connectedness and take a look at your anti-racism work. You believe women have powerful stories to tell and by sharing them together, we all grow stronger. Okay, that is like very serious and noble and powerful, but this is Jamie and I want to get to our rant and it's a very deep, deep topic. Guys, can we talk free Britney? Right. Let's do it. Can we talk free Britney? Because everybody else is. Okay, so I've been on team free. Okay, actually, let me back up. I wasn't on team free Britney for a while because I thought all of those people were being a bit hysterical. I was one of the naysayers who didn't realize just how bad it was. And I feel terrible now that I've watched all the documentaries and gone down the total rabbit hole of the podcasts. And I truly understand what went on with this conservatorship. So for a long time, I was like, these people are all conspiracy theorists. But whoa, like, what is your take? And she credits them. She's gone publicly and credit the people who were so vocal with hashtag free Britney for really helping her um, 
become free, right? I think that they, yeah. you know, were very Jane helpful. Jane sent me a video last night um, of of her thanking all of them, like the, of the entire Free Britney movement. I, I think it's so rough though, Jane, and I totally get, this is Heidi talking. I was a Free Britney person from the beginning because I just always been a Britney fan. You got it. You got it. You're, you're more sensitive than me. But I understand why naysayers were naysayers because every time she spoke, she was so desperate to get her message out that she was tripping over her words. She didn't really seem very lucid. She didn't. And that, and, but, but, but in hindsight, you can see, of course, hindsight is always 2020 that it's because she was just, she had such finite windows to get her voice out there as she, you know, she continually said how she was silenced, which is, you know, so ironic for a singer who was performing, but it's true. She had these like tiny, tiny snippets of time where she was maybe could get out her words. So she always sounded a little hysterical, histrionic, you know, all those well, things. Well, let's be real. She still does. And God bless. And I think that she, I think she's admitted that she's, she's, she's not a hundred percent and she's medicated. I mean, she's not, she's never not admitted that. No. And yeah. I have to say, it's hard for me because back in the day, you know, I worked with her quite a bit. I watched the Britney documentary and all of my coworkers from teen people were on it. You know, she was on our cover a bunch of times. You know, I was at concerts with her in my MTV days and all. She's not the same Britney I knew back then. And it is still hard for me to watch because the mama bear in me wants to be like, okay, I'm glad that conservative ship is over, but somebody needs to take a little bit of care of you. I think they did it to her, though. I think she's been over-medicated for a zillion years. And let me tell you something. As somebody who was formerly over-medicated myself, I'm very public that I'm now sober, I know what it feels like to come off all of that stuff. And it does not feel normal. So it might take her a while to level out. I, I think she's been medicated by people. It was yeah. unreal what they did to her. And the, the point is this. I know a lot of people who are a little off kilter, just like her. <laughs> and are yeah. allowed to manage their own affairs. Truth, so the fact yes. that she was able to earn zillions of dollars, you're allowed to be a little off in this country. Yeah. You know, I was curious about like, has the money all dried up? I mean, how was her money managed? I, I haven't heard too much about that. Yeah. I mean, who knows? I think probably more will be revealed. But I mean, she was just a cash cow for people. And they were literally trotting her out like a show pony and putting her back in her stall and shooting her up with medicine. And she wasn't even allowed to, in that video you sent me, she was like, I got to buy a candle. A candle. Right? Oh my God. I was like, oh, I, I know. An ATM. She's like, I went to the ATM <sighs> machine. I had and cash I took in my hand. Oh my goodness. Like, I can't even fathom. Cannot fathom. Cannot fathom what it feels like to to watch everybody else earn off of your hard work that you've been put you know, for your whole life and then to have it all just drained and to be silenced for over a decade that I can't even imagine what that feels like. But I do feel like reentry is going to be difficult and she, she needs good people nurturing her and caring for her as she kind of returns to society with an ATM machine and a candle. Right. Well, don't you wonder, like, because that's kind of like the meme that we were talking about, guys, like the 2007 would be proud. And it was like, Paris is married, you know, Britney's like free and Lindsay's acting again. And when you look at those people, I mean, Paris has actually a head on her shoulders and I've worked with Paris a lot. And she's actually lovely. So is Kim Kardashian. I mean, by and large, there's a lot of nice people out there that get a lot of flack. But I'll tell you, like Britney, Lindsay Lohan, these are people with, there's a problem. They're, the celebrity, like narcissism train, once you get all these people around you who are like, yes, people, and they just, you know, that nobody says no or tells you the real truth. And then especially if your parents are maybe not so great, 
you have a real problem. And I do always pray that those people that are trying to get back on their feet, that there could be someone good around them because it's very hard. Well, this is the thing, right? Is how is she ever going to trust someone again? Because that's, I think, is her biggest work. And Meg's how you said, you know, you really, she needs people around her. She really does. But after her whole life experience, like, how does this woman learn to trust someone else to help her? Because all of these people in her conservatorship were supposed to help her. And all they did was, as noted, drain her funds and lock her up and silence her. So... I'm glad that she has a a man in her life that she seems to be very in love with. But I really do hope there are some women around that can sisterhood her back to health. Yeah, not her sister. (laughs) Not her sister. I really pray for that for her because there's something very powerful. And I don't think that she has that. So prayers up to Brittany. We're glad you're free, sis. Speaking of sisterhood and stories of sisterhood, let's move on to our guest. Chloe's book, Life I Swear, is an anthology of stories from modern-day Black women sharing their truth around self-reflection and healing. And in a time when we are all reckoning with the racial divide and seeking to amplify Black voices in a way that impacts, this storytelling vessel is just the tool we all need to mend and transcend complex issues around race and gender. Because what Chloe proves is, at the end of the day, These are stories about the universal experience of self-love, healing, growth, and life. The foreword was written by the incredible Elaine Welteroff, New York Times bestselling author, former Teen Vogue editor-in-chief, and recently named judge of the hit show Project Runway, who said, This book offers a safe space for Black women to feel seen in our most vulnerable and authentic truths. Through Chloe's meticulous curation, she invites you into a community that blossoms with each breakthrough, and that challenges you to do the work you were put here to do. That's pretty special. Chloe, welcome. Thank you so much. (laughs) What a great introduction, but thank you so much for having me, and I'm excited to have conversations with you Yes, thank you so much for being here, Chloe. So I'm Heidi, and I would love it if you could just please tell us, just go back to the beginning, tell us a little bit about how you grew up, what was your experience, and was there anything in that growing up that shaped who you are today? Ooh, back to the beginning. Yes, not the beginning of the book, the beginning of life. (laughs) Gosh, such an existential question. I think my background definitely has everything to do with who I am and why I felt it was necessary to write this book and what led me to the book. So I am half Congolese, Republic of Congo. I was born in DRC, Democratic Republic of Congo. My dad's side of my family, they're dancers and drummers, Congolese dancers and drummers. So I come from a very artistic family. And I think that is innate in terms of just yearning to express myself in some way. My mother's family is, uh, the lineage comes from Croatia. She grew up between Rome and Northern California. You know, my mother's story, I think, is such a catalyst for my own. She was a single mother. And, you know, after she graduated from college in the 70s, she wanted to study Italian because she was in love with Italian. Um, she studied French instead. So after graduating, she didn't know what to do with a French degree. So she joined the Peace Corps. And because she spoke French, the Peace Corps placed her in Niger, West Africa. She fell in love with it. And I often say that Niger was her biggest love affair um, with this country, a white woman, you know, green eyes, freckled face, living in very remote villages and towns in Niger. And um, in the Peace Corps, she did a lot of education work and she was a nurse in a very remote village, but she stayed 
for 20 years. And she worked for the embassy there. She worked for some nonprofits. And it led her to Congo to have me to the States. And then when I was seven, we moved back to Niger. And I spent most of my formative years there. It was such an interesting experience because I was biracial. I was also Black American living with a white mother in the heart of the Sahara Desert. And so there were just all these um, dichotomies and intersections around identity, privilege, race, and that looked different whether I was in Niger or whether I was with my white family as the only person of color in my white family or whether I was in Congo where I have siblings and I'm the only American of my Congolese family. And then, you know, there's a whole race dynamic that is different in different contexts, even within the U.S. And so that is, you know, the first part of this book is called Sum of My Parts, S-U-M, meaning I am the sum of all the things that make up who I am. Yes, I am some, S-O-M-E, of my experience you know, in Niger, of my experience in within my white family or white America, or, you know, as an expat in Niger. And I also lived in Mali. I've also lived in Rwanda. But all of these experiences, all of these origins that make me who I am, this is the sum of me. And so, you know, when I think about identity, we're fans of labels because it, it helps people better understand and wrap their mind around who we are. And I always struggled a little bit when people were like, where are you from? Or what are you? You know, and it's easy to say I'm, I'm from DC. I was born and raised. Boom. I, I, I have a persona. I could make that make sense. But for me, I, I lived in so many different places. I had a very transient and nomadic life that it was hard to answer that question and sometimes still is. And so identity and just from a very holistic sense. Um, not just ethnically or racially, culturally, but who am I without the attachment to all of these labels and or affinities? I think that is the biggest question that I pose to myself, but also pose to other contributors in this book. Well, that makes a lot of sense how you landed in a space to write this book. It makes a lot of sense now, Chloe. So that kind of brings us to your adult life. And I'm personally so impressed. I mean, you've worked in communications and global citizenship for several foundations, of course, prior to starting your podcast career and writing this book. I I think our readers really want to know before we kind of dive into the book. I just want to hear a little advice from you, Chloe. How do you juggle so many hats, especially as a mother to a little one? And do you have any advice to our listeners maybe wanting to branch out from there? primary job to pursue a side hustle or or follow a dream? Oh, yeah. I mean, and mind you, I still am working full time. (laughs) But I've, I've been lucky enough with this particular role that I'm in now full time to have some generous flexibility. You know, it's hard. I think, you know, there was a a chunk of the writing and editing. And I've always, always been an entrepreneur on the side. And as a mother, even if it's not to work on a side hustle, it's just hard to find time to just breathe and And, you know, sometimes you got to hide in the closet, whatever it is, I think you have to fold into your routine if it's just five minutes to just jot ideas. And then the next day, go back and you may not work on those ideas, but like make them reminders. I've always, maybe this is, you know, I, I do human design research and I'm a manifesting generator and we always have these projects that we're working on. And I have a 
uh, even though I, I like to, you know, advocate for rest, I have a restless mind where I'm always wanting to create and it's a way for me to use my imagination beyond my, you know, drop offs and pickups. <laughs> and I do actually attribute that to growing up in such a nomadic way is that I'm always wandering and wondering. And I think that even as a, you know, as a mother, I still want to tap into that wandering and wondering what is out there? What can I do? How can I get my feet wet in the things that I love? Because I refuse to live a life that isn't itching at those desires, you know, and I think that that shouldn't be a luxury. It should be for me. I see it as a requirement to myself to keep that spark alive. And often we think of, you know, oh, timed ourselves. What a dream, but like make it a priority in the same way you make the literal feeding of your children or the literal like work that you do. This is, this is work and it's feeding your soul and it needs to be fed in order for you to, you know, really live a life that feels aligned with who you are and who you dream to be. And sometimes it's easier said than done, but I think just keeping that mindset more than anything is important. So Chloe, I'm an author too, and I'm I'm really relating to this because I have hidden in a closet to write, like no doubt have done that. And I know what it takes to write your passion project. And it seems like glamorous and exciting, but it's honestly mm-hmm. the hardest thing that I've ever done. It took me three years to write my book, which came out in February. And I'm sure if you've felt the same at some point, especially be, you know being the carrier vessel for mm-hmm. such important stories during such an important time. Can we talk about that? In full transparency, I decided to write this book when I was on a sabbatical. I took a year off from work for mental health. It was at a time where all the things I thought made sense crumbled. And um, before I crumbled myself, I needed to take some time away. And so I used that time to, I divided it in quarters, but like the first quarter, I really just stared out the window and let all my feelings run through me. Um, and then I took care of health and work, you know, got my, my body and, and feeling strong again. And the third, I, I, I had social anxiety after a while because what led to that year off was I was expecting a, uh, my second pregnancy and I lost it at 27 weeks. And so there was just so many heartbreaks that came from that experience. Um, and the social anxiety was really, this was the year prior to um, the pandemic. And I would run into on the street to people who have either thought I already gave birth or had questions and didn't know how to navigate the conversation. And so I, I, I started to get out of the house a little bit more. And with that last quarter of that year, I was like, I need to document my growth, my heartbreaks, my breakthroughs, and I need to write my essays. I also recognize that aside from what's happened in this past year for me, there were other things that I hadn't tackled and addressed that probably should if I don't want to get in these unhealthy cycles with myself. And so I committed to, to writing the book and... Um, it was it was timely, I think, because as soon as I started pitching the book and I was ready to go back to work, then everyone was like, no one's going back to work. And the pandemic started. And it's interesting because I think for me, the book was timely, but then also for the world, the book was timely as well. 
I don't think there's a a, a blueprint for writing a book. Um, and sometimes you you sit on the idea for for years at a time, and you just like go. And sometimes you have to like. I often think you have to. Part of the writing process is also living between doing some living between your writing sessions. You know, you go out and experience the world or experience, you know, love or, or lust or heartbreak or, or whatever it is. And then you return to the pages with like a deeper connection to those emotions or those senses. And so however long it takes to write a book is however long is needed to write that book. <laughs> That's Amazing. <laughs> I love how you broke up in sections, your sabbatical. I love that you yeah. broke that up in quarters. And it, it actually reminds me a little bit about how, how you break up the book into different mm-hmm. sections. So I have a two-part question for you. Mm-hmm. My first question is, do you have a favorite story in the book? And if so, what mm-hmm. is it? I, that might be like having a favorite child. But you know, <laughs> we had the opportunity to interview Julie Wilson. So we've gotten oh. to hear a little bit of her amazing story and gotten yes. to feel her magic. And I'm a, I'm a magazine editor too. She's a coworker of mine. So I'm the editor in chief of Woman's Day. She's at Cosmo. So yes. we're both thirsty. Yes. So, so no pressure to say Julie's your favorite, but we love Julie. Okay. So what's your favorite story? And then can you explain how the book is broken out into the different sections and what they mean, please? Yes, absolutely. I always have to turn to the the table contents, but I do love it just to call out Julie's. I do love, I purposely left hers at the end because the title is go forth and be dope. Everything that we've all talked, we've talked about throughout this book, take it as, as it serves you and then just, you know, go forth and be dope. So the book is sectioned out into three parts and I kind of described the sum of my parts as the first one. It is it is around race, but it's also around living in that in-between, which I can attest to. But I also think the in-between, as you know, Elaine Welteroth, she writes in her essay, is it's not just in-between races. I think we're all in the in-between in some shape or form and living between different worlds in whichever ways we feel we have to code switch. Um, the second part of the book is called Bear Witness and... The two sections under it are attributed one to Still I Rise, Maya Angelou's essay, and The Current of Adieu, which is really around goodbyes. And um, there are some essays in here that are around grief of parents, of brothers. Um, My personal essay within this section and my essays are woven into all of these essays by the 25 uh, other women. I think I have six. Um, My goodbye actually is a goodbye to, it's a goodbye to a past relationship that was abusive in several ways. It's almost a goodbye. I got a question recently. It's like, when no wasn't in your vocabulary when you were younger, was it? And I was like, it it wasn't. And I love how you wanted to say no. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) And so this was the first time I was saying no and saying goodbye to almost an old version of myself. The third piece of the book, part of the book is called Piece It Together, P-E-A-C-E. And it is taking all of the things that we intuitively understand about ourselves, but may not have listened to. And I think that's the self-trust part of the book. It's all, we have some wisdom. We've told these stories. We we know we have some wisdom innately in us. Let's trust ourselves to be guided by that. Um, 
let's trust that we know what enough to know that we actually have discernment. We can lean on our, our past experiences and we can walk with intention. And so the parts in there are called if the heart could talk and human nature. Human nature really is, we are all messy and we, <laughs> we are all a mess and we can be a mess and a messenger at the same time. You know, we can need healing and also help others heal. Um, our human nature is not to live as linear as the male dominated world might expect us to, but the human nature is really let it ebb and flow and see the beauty in that. And I do think that the way the book is organized from identity, how do you perceive yourself to resilience or post-traumatic growth to self-trust and intuition? I think that is a progression in how we heal because we do have to ask ourselves, who am I? What have I been through? What am I capable of and how can I trust myself better and deeper to have a more intimate relationship with myself? Well, this is Jamie. I think that's a beautiful question for anybody to pose to themselves. And I think a lot of us have been doing deep personal work over the last year or two, especially with everything that's been going on. It's just been a real time of reflection, I think, for everybody on all sides. And we're obviously living in probably one of the most difficult times imaginable, to say the least. Your podcast and now your book are really a study in a kind of universal oneness and the things that we all share and the experiences that are individual, but also shared and common. And that's what humanizes us all. So how do you hope your work will break down the walls of racial divide? Mm, that's such a big question. I wrote this book, you know, obviously the primary audience was Black women to help them feel seen, understood and valued and be in community with each other. I think it, the book is giving what a lot of Black women didn't have in in-person interactions and when we were all in the, the workplace, which is just the autonomy to set boundaries, the autonomy to prioritize our own wellness, to respect our best interests and not mute or muffle them. And in that way, this time has been generous. It's also a book that is... For readers who are not Black women, I think so often stories of Black women are told on our behalf or we are spoken for. And, and also Black women are often put in positions where we have to negotiate our value, make a case for why our voices matter. And I really liked the idea of having this collective. Whoever reads this is going to absorb these stories, hopefully, without negotiating their value. It is, it is here, it's packed in here, and they're so powerful. I think there is power to a collection that it also really gives insight into how textured and nuanced the Black woman experience is. And often there's a monolithic assumption around what it is to be a Black woman in America or, or elsewhere. Um, but the book, while I, I love how you described it um, when we started, a lot of these experiences are universal experiences that any woman or man um, can probably relate to pieces of them. We all experience grief. We all experience, you know, that finding your way and, and trying to trust our discernment. But told through the lens of, of Black women, it gives it adds some texture to what otherwise would be this monolithic assumption of 
of who we are. It adds some layers. It someone I, I recently spoke with it said it adds contour to <laughs> which I love that word. Um, it adds contour, it adds dimensions, you know. And I think every woman deserves that. The point of this book, hopefully, is that anyone who closes it, and I hope they kind of read it as if they're sipping it slowly, <laughs> but anyone who closes this book can feel that no matter where they are in life, that they are qualified to tell their story. I think that's particularly pronounced for Black women whose stories have been silenced or or quieted either by external forces or themselves. But I think that that stands true for anyone, anyone of any age. Um, I think that to feel qualified enough to tell your story is one of the most powerful things um, because that is how we open the gateway to understanding. We can't be em- empathetic if we don't understand you know, what we're trying to be empathetic around. I think empathy is rooted in understanding. I think you can't love me if you don't understand me. And so when we're trying to bridge divides of any kind, it is rooted in understanding, not just listening. And this is how I kind of relate it to the podcast, but really pulling back the layers, asking. It's like, even when I'm trying to understand myself, it's how do I feel? Well, I feel X, Y, Z. Why do I feel that way? Well, I feel X, Y, Z because ABC. I love just asking the whys and really getting to the core of what I'm challenged by because often it's disguised as something else. I love that. And it's like it's sitting with me that feeling qualified to tell Mm -hmm. your story. That's really sitting with me. I'm like, I want to noodle on that even more. And I'm interjecting because I, I really know I'm, I feel like I want to give our listeners this call to action. If they want to do their own anti-racism work, like what's the advice? What's what's the action step? Mm, that is that's a it's a good question. I mean, I think it's I've worked in um, DNI before in my in my career. And I think, you know, it it. Really, and can you our reader just DNI for our, our listeners? I say readers because I'm a magazine yeah. editor. I mean listeners. <laughs> um, diversity and inclusion. Got it. Okay. And I do think that you know, the diversity inclusion, and and some folks have been calling it diversity equity and inclusion, and how we talk about that, you know, from an internal culture perspective. The equity part is we're all showing up into spaces, and I'm just referencing the workplace, for example. We're all expected to perform and deliver at the same performance level. But some of us are walking into spaces with heavy burdens on our shoulders and on our hearts. And so it's not, it's inequitable to think that that we can all perform at the same rate, that our outcomes can be measured in the same way when some of us have a ball and chain or a heavy weight on our shoulders. And so I think it's, you know, it's meeting folks where they are. Um, And I think that that's probably a vague answer for such a big question, but it is about leaning into understanding more and asking questions. I struggle with this because I have two sides of a family that are very different night and day. <laughs> you know, I have part of my family, they've they've never left Congo. They don't have a passport. They don't have access to education and there's no jobs in the country. And I have 
another part of my family that where there are some people who are Trump supporters, <laughs> you know? And so it's b- literally living in this in-between. I can understand how one side of my family has no idea what the other side experiences on a day-to-day basis. And so me being in the middle, my my job or the, the role that I've personally stepped into is bridging that divide by helping foster more understanding. But I do think that that, that question might be bigger than, than me and <laughs> my ability to, to answer because what I know that I'm in control of is my personal healing. And it takes for us to collectively kind of break down these barriers. It takes everyone to be held accountable for their personal healing journey. Because when I work on my personal healing journey, then I can have empathy and understanding for yours. Well, and I think empathy, because that's such a big piece of it, simply reading your essays and hearing these different voices will help with that. And maybe that's just a small step forward. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, I think we're all chipping away at this all one day at a time. And the more we can all be readers and listeners and seekers, the better off we'll all be. I think that's a beautiful mm-hmm. message to leave to mm-hmm. leave us with. But I do want uh, just a couple, couple final things from you, Chloe. First of all, um, what's coming up next for you? And also, where can our listeners find you on the gram? Yes. Thank you for asking. Um, coming up in the most immediate next, I have a book tour that is um, happening. We're re- hitting up um, Oakland and LA with Elaine Welteroff on the 21st of November, Atlanta, back to LA. And so um, they can find me on my website, um, chloeluvueso.com. And of course, I have more writing underway for my next <laughs> my next book project. I love it. I, there's some screaming um, behind me. <laughs> Sorry. We're, we're all moms here. We're all Cut moms here. Yeah. <laughs> all of the kids. <laughs> You're right. good. We're all moms here. Okay. Okay. <laughs> it's just a little intense right now. Um, they all just got back from school and happy apparently. Um, so <laughs> did you tell us your Instagram handle though, Chloe? Mm, my Instagram is just Chloe underscore Dulce. Okay. Love it. Our very very last thing is called Carmichael. Yay. So I, I have Megan say it because she just says it best. Um, but I am the resident yogi. So I will explain that karma is a Sanskrit word for action. So we ask all of our amazing inspirational guests, you, what is one small actionable item that our listeners could try out for a short period of time that would yield a large result? Small action, large result. Mm, that's a good question. I think a small action is, uh, have you heard of the morning pages? Yes. Yeah. I'm a big fan. And um, Megan, if you're not familiar, just wake up in the morning and just, just throw your, your thought vomit onto the paper. <laughs> and I often like to say, you know, it clears space. Um, and it clear, it clears space for more clarity and, and for you to actually be present with your thoughts. Um, we so often just move day to day in the motions. So wait, is it an, is it an app, a physical journal or just, I don't, I haven't heard of it. So like from the artist's way, right? Yes. It's from the artist's way. Um, and it's this idea that, um, we every day, every morning journal, out as much as you can. And it could be the small things that are clogging <laughs> your spiritual pores. Um, it could be, 
you know, what you desire, what you want to manifest, do that routinely. And I find myself, it's almost like my green detox, you know, (laughs) Um, it's a, it's a detox of all of the the thoughts that keep you from clarity. Um, And I think that for me, that's, that's yielded immense, um, is immense affirmation in the thoughts that actually are clear. (laughs) Love that. Love that. I always have an analogy. If you're going to fill a barrel with clean, fresh water, you wouldn't pour the fresh water in over the dirty water, right? You have to get Mm -hmm. the dirty water out first and you can refill it with the clean, fresh water. And I think that's a big part of it. Just getting all Mm -hmm. of the junk out of your head. That's just running around in there like crazy. What a beautiful, beautiful call to action to people to just take one step in the morning to like Mm -hmm. declutter the mind. Thank you so much for that, Chloe. Thank you for joining us. We absolutely loved meeting you. I hope everybody goes out and buys your book, Life I Swear. And we will definitely be keeping up with you and following along on your Instagram to see what's next on your journey. Thank you all. Thank you, Megan, Jamie. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks, girl. Talk soon. Okay. Bye. Chloe has left the chat. (gasps) Guys, First of all, talking to Chloe was like taking a warm bath. Why do I feel like I just meditated for 30 minutes? I could listen to her voice forever. It's all I could think of. I mean, A, she's so stunningly beautiful and she glows from the inside. So like, I just wanted to stare at her and listen to her. I like forgot we were asking her questions at certain points. I was like, oh, right, 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 right. And I think all the plants, listeners can't say this, but she was surrounded by plants. and And the whole time I'm like, I need a plant. I definitely need a plant because totally. it was just like the green energy was good. A real plant because all of mine behind me are fake. A real plant. But you know what? I always like marvel at women like her who have such big careers and have such a quiet but powerful energy. But what's interesting, you guys, and what I really liked that she shared was that she broke. She has a breaking point. She took a sabbatical. I really like when people share their truth. She is calm. She is powerful. She is Grounded. zen. She also is a boss babe. But also, she needed to take some time. And I just, I appreciate it so much when women admit that to one another, because it allows us all to take a little more space. But also even just understanding, like sometimes pain is the springboard for such amazing things. And when you're in it, when you're going through that 27 week miscarriage, it doesn't feel like it. Right. But like this incredible passion project was born from pain, from grief, from sorrow. I mean, I think that happens for so many creators. It's the catalyst is often the not so good thing that you can't believe you got through. Absolutely. And I also think though, Jamie, to your point, it's like a double, I feel two ways about this. I think that the strongest people are those who know when they need breaks and know it's okay to take a break. Because I think people that aren't as strong are too insecure to take the break. So I think there's that aspect of it. I also, so I, I'm so unbelievably amazed and inspired by Chloe's ability to take that break. Cause I think m- many people couldn't, I think that part of her energy, her groundedness, everything about her that was so powerful in the quiet was because she takes care of herself. And that break was such a big part of it. And and like, thank goodness that she does share those things. But it's also like, you're so strong. <laughs> I, also, I also just love that she really acknowledged the power in a collection of stories, like hearing a collection of women's voices, essays, so cool essays, like short 
thinking on topics and subjects that are dear to people's hearts and and putting them together in a way that uh, when it's well curated, there is something so powerful about an anthology. And I just think I, I think she's a young writer that has found some magic. And I can't wait to see what else is going to come from from Chloe. I mean, she's such a powerhouse. <laughs> I know. Well, I hope everybody follows along, um, follows Chloe underscore D-U-L-C-E. Now you'll be able to find her. She also has another Instagram for her book. I believe it's uh, at Life I Swear. Definitely go out and follow her, buy her book, read her words and the words of the sisters that she has curated into this anthology. And don't forget to follow us on the gram while you're there at Off the Gram Podcast. And please don't forget to subscribe to this show everywhere podcasts can be consumed so you never miss an episode. We'll see you next time. Bye, guys. Bye.